got your Bible, be turning to the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel. I want to return uh, to our study through the, the, the book of Daniel that we've been in over the last couple of months or so. As you're turning there, uh, when I was a kid, uh, Friday nights were game nights in our home as we were growing up. And uh, my sisters and I used to love playing a game called Jenga. Now, how many of you know what Jenga is? And uh, uh, the basic premise of the game of Jenga uh, involves a tower of 54 blocks, and each player takes a turn removing a block, and then takes that block and places it on top of the tower. Now, the objective of the game is to keep the tower from toppling over. But obviously, as more blocks are removed from the tower, put on top of the tower, uh, the tower becomes more unstable. And it's only a matter of time that the tower eventually falls. Now, I thought about that, and I think it's a fitting illustration for where we are in society right now. In the West, we have all been playing a big game of Jenga with our culture with our society. Uh, it seems that with each passing generation that comes and goes, uh, we remove yet another block. If you go all the way back to the 18th century, there were certain ideas that came out of the Enlightenment that took away belief in the supernatural. It was up until the Enlightenment period that this idea of unbelief was, was impossible to the mind. The Enlightenment period comes along and it made unbelief possible. Now we live in the wake of the Enlightenment, post-Christian, post-modern America, and now the thought process held by so many is that belief is impossible. So it was a block that was removed from the tower. And then of course in the 19th century you had the Industrial Revolution and we became enamored with what we could build with our own two hands as a society of people. And it was one more block that we removed from the tower. You fast forward to the 20th century, the sexual revolution that gave legitimacy to every form of lifestyle and expression. And it was yet one more block that we removed from the tower. Add to that the digital revolution and where we are in society, I think we all could agree that it seems like the Jenga Tower is tottering and close to collapse. Now, it's only a matter of time before we're going to find ourselves in a chaotic mess due to an avalanche of crises that we seem to be faced with. Uh, it's interesting that there are increasing numbers of calls uh, for a new world order. And we've heard this over the last several decades, even beginning uh, on the heels of World War II. There were those that called for a new world order. If you Google that, you'll be amazed at the, 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 the number of articles that will immediately come to a Google search, new world order, one of which was interesting to me. It came out of Bloomberg Magazine in July of this year, and the title really got, got my attention. A new world order for the coronavirus era is emerging. And basically, the article began this way, halfway into a year dominated by a pandemic, governments of the world are now confronting a health crisis, an economic crisis, a crisis of institutional legitimacy, all at the same time of heightening geopolitical rivalry. Basically, the article went on to just talk about the tension among the nations of the world. And the article closes out, by basically saying that a good analogy for what comes next may be the pre-war period of the 1930s. And whatever's happening, we're on the edge of some kind of gathering storm. It's just that we don't yet know what the storm will look like or how it's going to break. You know, peace is always affected in the pursuit of power. Uh, the world wants peace. The leaders of the world want peace but at the same time, they also want power. And lust for power often overrules in man's depraved heart. 
And one day, it's going to become embodied in a man whom the Bible refers to as the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, or the Antichrist. He'll be a man who's promising peace, who's uniting the world under a new agenda, but his lust for power is such that he's going to drag the whole world into the chaos of war. And so you're there in Daniel chapter 8. This is a chapter that we began looking at in our time last week, but it's a chapter that deals with the future of the world in Daniel's day. And all of what he was shown in this eighth chapter, uh, in, a, in a second vision that he receives, different from the vision of chapter 7, and yet it's a vision that concerns the future. Now, much of it had to do with the somewhat immediate future that, that Daniel and his world could anticipate. And so it was all prophecy and prophetic to Daniel at the time, and yet much of it is history to us. We're able to look back and see how much of what was shown Daniel was fulfilled uh, within a couple hundred years of his lifetime. And so the body of his vision, it's found in the first 14 verses of the chapter, which we've looked at previously. Uh, Basically, in this vision that Daniel receives, it happened in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, the last king of the Babylonian Empire. But Daniel saw himself in Susa on the banks of the Ulai Canal, which was soon to be the capital of the Persian Empire. To put it in perspective, imagine seeing yourself there standing on the banks of the Potomac River and you're overlooking the city of what is the most powerful nation in the world. That's what Daniel is given a glimpse of. He's going to be given a glimpse of a future world power that's going to overtake the Babylonians, the Persians. But in the vision, uh, Daniel sees a ram coming from the east, uh, and this ram had two horns. And the ram itself seemed to be invincible. But just as he was considering the ram, uh, he saw a male goat with a single prominent horn coming with speed and ferocity from the west. And there was an epic battle that ensued in which the goat prevailed over the ram. In my mind, as I was reading this, I I couldn't help but think of those epic battles between the bighorn sheep out in the Rocky Mountains that you've probably seen on, uh, on the animal planet or something like that. But that's what Daniel is seeing. But the goat defeats the ram. The goat becomes great. But then, as soon as the goat becomes great, Daniel sees that his prominent horn was broken and four other horns came up in its place. And out of one of these, uh, there came a little horn that grew into greatness and it trampled the host of heaven and Daniel saw that it cast some of the stars of the heavens to the ground. Now, all of this was a strange vision, to be sure, but... In the verses that follow, which we're going to look at here in just a minute, Daniel is told that the ram and the goat are symbolic of two world empires that will battle for domination. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, while the goat is the kingdom of Greece. And eventually, under the leadership of whom history reveals to be Alexander the Great, the kingdom of Greece overtakes the Persian Empire And it wouldn't be long before Alexander would die. His kingdom would be divided up among his four generals, represented by the four horns in the vision. And from one of these, a little horn would emerge, and this little horn would position himself to be the enemy of God's people. Again, all this is future to Daniel at the time, but it's history to us. And so history knows this figure known as the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. History knows him as Antiochus Epiphanes. That word Epiphanes means God manifest in Greek. And yet prophecy reveals that he is merely a forerunner or a foreshadowing of someone who is still to come in the future. And that is the man of sin, the Antichrist. So you've got your Bible open there, Daniel chapter 8. I want you to begin reading with me uh, in verse 15. 
And verse 15 says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. He says, I wanted to know what it all represented, what it all meant. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that an angel is mentioned by name, and it's the angel Gabriel. Now, Gabriel is mentioned only four times in the pages of God's Word. Uh, you've got uh, one reference here in uh, Daniel chapter 8, another reference in the next chapter, and then two references in the Gospel of Luke. And what we know about Gabriel is that he is God's messenger angel. Gabriel arise, uh, arrives on the scene to announce some news as it pertains to the plan of God. And so that's what is happening here. Uh, verse 17 says that he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Which, by the way, anybody in the Bible that ever had an encounter with, a, with an angel of God, this was the response. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the, the, the angels, they're not the little angels that you see in your children's precious moments Bible. You know, the fat little cherubs with rosy red cheeks and soft little wings. This was a terrifying encounter of this super, with this supernatural being, this angel, Gabriel. But he says to me, verse 17, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And that should give us a clue that this prophetic vision is going to have an immediate fulfillment just after Daniel's day, but ultimately it's going to point to something that's going to happen at the time of the end, the end of the age. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So notice three times there the emphasis on the end. As for the ram that you saw uh, with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. And his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he himself shall be broken, but by no human hand." The vision of the evenings and the mornings that's been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. In other words, he's saying, what, what I was shown, it really troubled me. It really troubled my spirit. It affected me physically. But he doesn't retreat from society. He doesn't become a doomsday prepper. <laughs> what does he do? He says, then I arose and went about the king's business. I went about my life. Even though I knew that I was working for a king whose kingdom was destined to crumble, I went about his business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I didn't understand it. I want to speak from this subject this morning, uh, the little horn. I want us to consider this mysterious figure here in Daniel chapter 8, uh, known as the little horn. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And Lord, as we deal with prophecy, there's so much, Lord, that we don't understand. But Lord, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so may we keep that as our perspective. Lord, we thank you that the victory belongs to our God. 
and that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will prevail. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Within the field of Bible prophecy, there exists a phenomenon known as dual or double fulfillment. Uh, Dual fulfillment of prophecy is that which anchors an event in the past by presenting a type of that which will happen in the future. In fact, most prophecy in the Old Testament is, is, is dual fulfillment prophecy. Uh, certain prophecies are usually connected to an immediate fulfillment that will happen in the lifetime or just after the lifetime of the prophet, while also being connected to a more distant fulfillment in some future time. Uh, one Bible scholar has said it this way, the prophets looked into the future with bifocal vision. With their nearsight, they foresaw imminent historical events that would be brought about by familiar human causes, and yet with their long sight, they saw the day of the Lord. Now, dual fulfillment of prophecy, you see this uh, in, in, in a number of familiar prophecies in the Bible. Uh, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 18, God told the people of Israel that the Lord would raise up a prophet likened to himself that God would provide leadership for his people through raising up someone who would be a prophet with authority much like had been given to Moses. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also know that it was fulfilled throughout the centuries of Israel's history with various prophets that God raised up who spoke authoritatively and uh, declared the word of the Lord to God's people. Another prophecy that you see that has a dual sense of fulfillment is the prophecy found in Joel chapter 2 concerning the day of the Lord and uh, how God would one day pour out his spirit upon all flesh, resulting in, you know, your sons and daughters prophesying, that kind of thing. Well, Peter in Acts chapter 2 shows how Pentecost is partial fulfillment of that prophecy. But ultimately, it points to the coming of Christ and what will happen at the end of the age. There are certain things about that prophecy that have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, Think about uh, the the prophecy of Christ, uh, the Son of God who would come, the child who would be born. Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. So in one wide sweep, in one verse, you've got both the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ contained in one prophetic promise. There would be an immediate fulfillment and there would be a future fulfillment. You see the same thing with what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24 uh, in the Olivet Discourse uh, when he talked about the, the, the destruction of the temple. Uh, The disciples, as they were coming out of the temple complex, they were mesmerized by the the, the temple and all of its magnificent buildings. And Jesus said, uh, the time is coming where not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. Uh, The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, has yet to be rebuilt. So there was an immediate fulfillment. And yet on the heels of that, Jesus began talking about the coming day of the Lord. Uh, what would happen at the end of the age in his return. And so the double nature of prophecy, it's seen in what's revealed to Daniel about the little horn. You see this both in chapter 7 with the vision of empires that Daniel was given, and you see this here in chapter 8. And so this little horn referred to here is going to be fulfilled in a historical figure who's going to arrive about 175 BC, he'll become a ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, but he's going to foreshadow the future man of sin that the Bible knows as the Antichrist. But in many ways, Antiochus is going to typify what the Antichrist is going to be like in the last days. And so this little horn of Daniel chapter eight is both historic and prophetic. Now notice with me to begin with, let's take a look back in history at this guy known as Antiochus. Let's consider Antiochus and his reign in history. Now, 
you may have never heard of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've got a study Bible and your study notes are open there to Daniel chapter 8, you probably have some paragraph or two of explanation given about this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. But history tells us that he was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty that ruled over Syria and over the Middle East in the wake of Alexander the Great. Now we know that this guy was a megalomaniac. He was one of the most wicked men to have ever ruled in history over any kingdom. Uh, And Daniel's prophecy records the details for us and subsequent history shows us how it was all fulfilled. Uh, What were the details of this Antiochus and his rise to power? Well, I told you last week that when Alexander died, uh, he died at the age of 33, he didn't have a successor. He had no son, and so his empire was divided up among his generals who then began to fight one another for territory. And in time, two of those men became the strongest. You had Ptolemy, uh, who ruled over Egypt and parts of the south, and you had Seleucus, who ruled over Syria and parts of the east. Now, over the next century, the Ptolemaic kings would fight their rivaling Seleucid kings for control and dominance, and often uh, Israel would become ground zero uh, for their battles. But in 175 BC, Antiochus comes to power over the Seleucid dynasty in Syria. And so Antioch of Syria, this is where he uh, reigns from. Now, these books are not in our, our canon of Scripture, but you've got First and Second Maccabees that are two apocryphal books that sort of tell the history of all of this and what happened during the 400 years between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot of history that happened during that time period. Even though the prophets were no longer speaking, even though the Old Testament era had come to a close, During those 400 silent years, there was a lot that was happening in the world that would uh, greatly alter the landscape and impact the world of the New Testament as we know it. So 1 Maccabees, uh, the very first chapter of 1 Maccabees says that when Antiochus had established himself as king, he decided to conquer Egypt, to conquer Ptolemy. He was able to capture the fortified cities of Egypt and plunder the whole land, And then in 169 B.C., uh, he decides that he's going to march with his army against the land of Israel and Jerusalem itself. And so he sort of sets himself up as this guy who's going to pick on the Jews. Uh, Notice the damage then that he inflicts upon the Jewish people. Uh, With aspirations of conquest like Alexander before him had held. Antiochus was determined to subjugate people. He wanted to subjugate the whole East. In fact, many historians agree that he became the first person in history to persecute a people exclusively for their religious faith. And that's exactly what he does with the Jews. He does everything in his power to eradicate Judaism and force the Jews into worshiping the Greek gods. Again, Maccabees tells us how it all went down. Uh, It says that he sent messengers with a decree to Jerusalem to all of the towns, ordering the people to follow customs that were contrary or foreign to the country. He ordered them not to offer their burnt offerings in the temple. He commanded them to treat the Sabbath and other festival days as ordinary days. They were ordered to make themselves ritually unclean in every way they could so they would forget the law which the Lord had given through Moses. Uh, History even records that as he prepared for his final conquest against Egypt in 169 B.C., uh, he received word from the Romans who were beginning to rise in their strength. The Roman fleet had been anchored off of uh, Cyprus, and they basically send word to Antiochus saying, listen, leave the Ptolemies alone in Egypt and get back to where you come from. So uh, Antiochus decides he doesn't want to take on the Romans and, and the Ptolemies at the same time, so he, he, he makes for Syria. But not before he stops halfway and decides to take out all of his anger and his frustration and his embar- embarrassment on the Jewish people. And history says that he uh, enters the city under the disguise of peace. 
He waited until the Sabbath and then ordered his army of 25,000 to carry out a wholesale slaughter of the city. Many scholars estimate that upwards of 80,000 Jews were slain by Antiochus and his armies. Another 40,000 were sold into uh, slavery, and it was the beginning of his reign of tyranny. Now keep in mind all that Daniel has been shown in his vision here in chapter 8. What is it that he sees? You go back up to to verse 9. Uh, The little horn becomes great. He casts some of the stars to the ground and tramples upon them, the host of heaven. This is reference to God's people. It's a symbolic reference to, to the saints of God, God's people. Daniel sees that this little horn is permitted to remove the regular burnt offering and then overflow, uh, overthrow the place of the sanctuary. In fact, history even tells us that Antiochus killed Jewish mothers who were intent on, on the circumcision of their baby boys. At the height of his persecution, uh, he, he just slaughtered people by the dozens, and it was a terrible time for the Jewish people. Uh, He has disregard for the truth. Uh, In verse 12, Daniel saw how the host would be given over to this little horn, how it would throw truth to the ground, and then it would act and prosper. Verse 24 says that he would cause fearful destruction and would be successful in all that he did. In other words, the little horn would be successful in his agenda to prevent worship in the temple and do away with the scriptures. And we know that Antiochus made the law of Moses illegal in Jerusalem. Uh, He wanted to Hellenize all of the Jews. He wanted all of the Jews to become good Greeks and worship the Greek gods. Any copies of the law of Moses that were found uh, were, were, were taken and they were burned. And anyone found with a copy of the scriptures was put to death upon order of the king. But the height of his his, his tyranny, I mean, it really is seen in what he does when he defiles the temple itself. He commits an act of desecration in the temple that Daniel refers to as the abomination of desolation. He'll refer to it here in chapter 8. Uh, he'll refer to it again in chapter 9 and then in chapter 11. And basically what Antiochus did, uh, he went into the temple, he took a pig, slaughtered that pig, And on the altar, there in front of the Holy of Holies, took the blood of that sow and he spattered it all over the Holy of Holies itself and then set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and demanded that the Jews worship this image of Zeus. And interestingly enough, it's this very act that's going to foreshadow a future act that a future man of sin is going to do in the last days. And Jesus refers to this as the abomination of desolation. He reaches back into Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not stand, and you better be prepared, he said, for great tribulation. So Antiochus then becomes a foreshadow of this figure, the Antichrist. So notice with me, secondly, how this passage foreshadows Antichrist and his role in prophecy. It records the details of Antiochus and his reign in history. That part's been fulfilled. But there's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist and the role that he's going to play in prophecy, the future, which is yet to come. So you get down to verse 22, there's a transition, and the angel tells Daniel of something that's going to happen at the latter end of the kingdom, when transgression has reached its limit. And so Daniel's going to be shown something that ultimately, it's going to foreshadow something in the future. It's going to be fulfilled in the not-too-distant future, but it's going to foreshadow something to be fulfilled uh, in the distant future. And so Antiochus and his antagonism toward the Jews provides a prophetic preview of this future man of sin, his opposition to God. Lewis Talbot says it this way, uh, when the vision recorded here was given to Daniel, all of it had to do with then prophetic events. Whereas today we look back and see that everything in verses 1 through 22 refers to men and empires that have come and gone. And we read about them in the pages of secular history. 
Verses 23 through 27 of the chapter before us have to do with the king of bold face, a king with a fierce countenance who will appear in the latter time, and this is a reference to Antichrist who is to come. Now, let me just say this. It probably comes as a surprise to a lot of us to learn that the the name Antichrist, the word Antichrist, only appears four or five times in the Bible, each of which occur in 1 John and 2 John. It's John, the Apostle John, who refers to the Antichrist. And when he refers to Antichrist, uh, he's using it as, as a term to speak of those within the church who emerge as heretics to introduce false teaching to God's people. Uh, for example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming, but even now many Antichrists have appeared, and for this we know that it's the last hour. So John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have appeared throughout redemptive history. Antichrist, it's a word that means in the place of Christ or against Christ. So the Antichrist is someone who opposes Christ and even sets himself up as a Christ figure, a savior. You know, this is largely the story of the Bible, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, where the promise is given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That's largely the story of the Bible, where you have, you have two seeds, you have two cities, you have the people of God, and you have uh, the seed of the serpent, and, and with every era of redemptive history, there seems to be someone who emerges as the antagonist who's used by Satan to persecute and harass the people of God, all in an attempt to destroy the promised seed of the woman. I mean, you see this in Noah's day. Uh, You see this in the Exodus with Pharaoh himself, who who is a, a type of the Antichrist to come, who sets himself up as the enemy of God's people. Uh, You see this uh, with, with Haman, in the book of Esther, who's the enemy of the Jews, bent on their destruction. By the way, we saw that, we've seen this in recent modern history, have we not? With, with Hitler and all of the atrocities that Nazi Germany committed against, against the Jews. Why is it that there just seems to be such animosity in history directed toward Israel and the Jewish people? Well, let me show you, keep your finger in Daniel 8 and go to Revelation 12 for just a second. Go to Revelation chapter 12. And and look at what the apostle John, he's given a vision in Revelation chapter 12. Um, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, and John says, I saw a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Listen, this is what what John is seeing here. He's seeing this epic battle that Satan is waging against God and his hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the child that's referred to, the woman that's referred to as Israel. Why is it that there's been such antagonism toward the Jews throughout human history? It's simply because the Jews were God's chosen instrument through whom Messiah would come into the world, through whom God would reveal the truth of himself, through whom God would reveal the truth of the scriptures. And so is there any reason why Satan and the powers of darkness are bent on destroying the woman? And not just the woman, you look at the end of chapter 12. John saw how the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's the church. 
Satan hates both Israel and Satan hates the church. And Satan will do absolutely everything that he can to try to stamp out the people of God. Now you get into chapter 13 and John sees something else. Uh, John sees another beast. He sees a beast beginning to emerge. Uh, He says, from the sea. And he says, this beast had 10 horns, seven heads, 10 diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now notice how the beast that's mentioned in chapter 13 is a lot like the dragon that's mentioned in chapter 12 because the dragon gives the beast its power. And then notice specifically the types of animals that are used to describe this beast in verse two, a leopard, a bear, a lion. Does that sound familiar? It ought to because it's the exact same thing that Daniel sees in chapter seven. So what John is seeing in Revelation chapter 13 is this final kingdom that will be on the earth, the kingdom of Antichrist who is coming, and it's going to be somewhat of a composite type of an empire made up of of everything else. It's going to have elements of the Greek empire, maybe its philosophical system. It's going to have elements of Babylon, maybe maybe the the wealth of Babylon. It's going to have elements of Rome, uh, perhaps the government of Rome, that kind of thing. But ultimately, there's going to be someone who's going to emerge as the head of this empire, who's going to embody evil. He's going to carry out the dictates of his empire, and so this is the Antichrist who's referred to, and John describes him in detail there in chapter 13, and the comparison that he makes, uh, it's, it's so much like what Daniel describes of the little horn in chapter seven and here at the close of chapter eight. So when you come to this biblical doctrine of Antichrist, you need to realize a couple of things. When the Bible refers to the Antichrist, it's referring both to a spirit, a spirit of Antichrist that's at work in the world, has been at work in the world, and is at work in the world even now. It also refers to a system or an empire, and yet it's also referring to a person who's going to be at the head of that empire in the last days. They say, this is pretty serious stuff. It could be fearful stuff, scary kind of stuff, but it doesn't have to be scary because we simply know that all of these are merely the instruments of God before God's going to usher in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to the overarching message of Daniel, folks. And the message is this, God is sovereign over the nations of men. No matter what happens on the world stage, God is sovereign over it all. And the kingdoms may rage against God and his truth. There may be persecution of God's people and hostility that's directed toward the truth of God and his gospel, but Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus Christ will reign. The kingdoms of this world will ultimately belong to the Son of God himself. So when you consider what Daniel says about this little horn here in chapter eight, notice just a couple of things quickly. Notice he describes how he's a man with a bold personality. Verse 23 describes him as being a king of a bold face or a king with a fierce countenance. The idea is that he'll present himself in a proud, haughty way. You go back to chapter seven and the little horn that's referred to there is described as having the eyes of a man. The idea is he has a winsomeness about him, but he has a mouth speaking great things. John says the same thing in Revelation 13 verse five. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse 23 in Daniel goes on to say that this bold-faced king will be someone who understands riddles. What does that mean? Well, other translations express it this way. He he understands sinister schemes. He will be skilled in the art of intrigue. In other words, he's going to be a problem solver. He's going to present himself as the solution to the global problems of his day. 
This is going to be the guy who has all of the answers. And his way of doing things will appear to be the right way. But then notice his demonic power. Verse 24 says his power will be great, but not by his own power. It means there's a, there's a demonic quality about him that leads others to get behind him. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Uh, you ought to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a second and see what Paul actually has to say uh, about uh, this antichrist, this man of sin, whom he describes as being a man of lawlessness. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who were perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. The Thessalonian believers were wrestling with issues of life and death and they were scared to death that they had missed the coming of Jesus. And so Paul writes to, to encourage them in their faith and says, listen, you've not missed the coming of the Lord. He says, uh, you need to know a couple of things that are yet to happen. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. That day will not come unless a rebellion comes first. The word is apostasia. He's saying there's going to be a great falling away from the faith. People are going to turn away from the truth. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed uh, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. A couple verses later, he says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the, the world. He describes the Antichrist as being a lawless figure, a man of lawlessness. What does that mean? Uh, it means that... Uh, he's going to be a man who despises truth, who's going to want to come up with truth, his truth. And Paul says that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in the world. By the way, we see this being played out every day in our society, the mystery of lawlessness, where there just seems to be a spirit of lawlessness that's sweeping over society and over the world even now where man has set himself up as the arbiter of what's right and wrong, where man gets to decide what's true and what's not true. Ladies and gentlemen, God reveals what's true and what's not true. Truth is something that is objective. It's revealed by a creator who's made us in his image. He's determined right from wrong. And yet there seems to be such a spirit that pushes back against that, that pushes against that. And it's only becoming more increasingly the case simply because we're living in last days. But it's all demonic. Uh, Satan's behind it. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, Satan wants to keep people blinded to the truth. He doesn't want people's eyes to be opened as far as the gospel is concerned and the truth of Christ is concerned. Which is why God's got his church in the world. The church is in the world for the purpose of declaring the truth being salt, being light, preaching the gospel, pointing people to the only hope that they have. That's the truth of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So through demonic influence, this coming man of sin will deceive people into embracing his agenda. He's going to be skilled in the art of deception. He's a counterfeiter. By the way, the devil's a counterfeiter. Did you know that? I heard someone say it this way, the devil isn't creative, he's a counterfeiter. He can't create one thing. He only takes what God's created and he wants to pervert it and twist it. Martin Luther called Satan the great ape of God. All he tries to do is mimic God. How is this the case? Well, the Bible says he's got his own church referred to as the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 2. He has his own ministers who preach lies, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Satan has his own system of theology referred to as the doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He propagates a false gospel. He has his own throne and worshipers. He inspires false Christs, false saviors that people put their hopes in. He employs false teachers who bring destructive heresy into the church. Peter says as much in 1 Peter chapter 1 or chapter 2. 
So he's a counterfeiter. And so the Antichrist is going to be his ultimate counterfeit savior who's going to promise salvation to the world, but it's only going to result in judgment upon himself and his followers. His pride is ultimately seen, verse 25, this little horn in his own mind, he becomes great so that he magnifies himself above everything else. The NASB puts it this way, he'll magnify himself in his heart. Paul says that he's going to oppose and exalt himself against every God or so-called object of worship. He'll elicit worship for himself and ultimately in so doing he's eliciting worship for Satan who will be behind his empire. Now this is heavy stuff. Antiochus referred to himself as Epiphanes, God manifest. The Jews called him Epimenes, madman. Same thing's going to be true of the Antichrist in the last days. But what about his purpose? Why does God allow all of this to happen to begin with? Again, we can't forget the overall message in Daniel, folks. God raises up kings and he takes kings down. He raises up empires and takes empires down ultimately to show that he is sovereign over all. And when it looks like the world around us and the agenda of evil and the agenda of the devil is winning the day, we've got to remember the truth. And the truth is our God is in complete control. And if there's anything we learn from the book of Job, the devil can't do anything without the permission of God. Don't, in, in your mind, don't put the devil on this same level playing field with a sovereign, omnipotent God. He's not. He's God's devil. And ultimately, he's subject to God. And God's going to destroy all evil. And the promise of the saints, the hope of the saints, is that we're going to rule and we're going to reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. Now, as I close, let me just give you three quick things to help you uh, in a practical sense. How should we live our lives in light of these prophetic truths? What should we do? How do we live? Number one, we ought to live with a sense of anticipation, not speculation. A lot of people get in the ditch and they get sidetracked trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. God hadn't called his saints to live this kind of game, pin the tail on the Antichrist. You know, where you're trying to figure out the letters of a person's name and wonder, is that person the Antichrist? Does his name equal 666? That's speculation, and that's not why prophecy's been given. Again, remember, the plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things. And there's a lot we may not understand. And where we need to be dogmatic as the people of God is where the Bible is dogmatic. And the Bible is dogmatic in the sense that Jesus Christ is coming again, and when he comes, he's going to defeat Antichrist. And so we live our lives with a sense of anticipation. Well, I'm not anticipating the Antichrist. I'm anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm looking forward to. But then secondly, we ought to live our lives with a sense of occupation, not distraction. Occupation. We're to be busy. Daniel got back to work after this vision was given to him. He didn't retreat from society. He didn't bury his head in the sand and live the rest of his days like some kind of a hermit, a monk. No, he got busy. And these are days that call for the church to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to be about the task of making disciples, preaching the gospel, pointing people to the hope of God's Son. There are a lot of distractions Distractions aplenty, but don't be distracted as a believer, but be full of anticipation and occupation. And then third, we are to live with a sense of preparation. Don't procrastinate. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, listen, don't assume that you'll ever have another opportunity after today to receive him as your Savior. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You're going to live your life with a sense of preparedness. Are you prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Are you prepared for the rapture of the church? If not, then listen, right there where you are, let me just encourage you in an attitude of repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, 
who rose again from the dead and who is coming again in victory and in power. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Lord, we thank you today for the truth of your word. If we were all to be honest, Lord, we would confess that our world is in a mess. Our nation is in a mess. It would seem that the nations of the world are seething like a boiling cauldron. And so many, Lord, feel that we are indeed in the last of the last days. But Lord, would you keep us from the deception that will one day engulf the whole world? God, may we live in the light of your truth. Make us bold to share the gospel in these days. May we prioritize the faith. May we live with gospel courage. Lord, we don't have to fear the Antichrist and the agenda of evil, the mystery of lawlessness that's at work in the world. These things are to be expected in a fallen world, in a world of unbelief. But Lord, the good news of the gospel is that we can be of good cheer because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Not will overcome, but has overcome in his death and his resurrection and ascension and in his future return, which we eagerly anticipate and we long for. God, we want to recapture the Maranatha cry of the church of old. Even so, come Lord Jesus. God, forgive us for looking to political saviors to get us out of the mess that we've been in. We can't look to the world's political saviors. We look to the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.